Grab a Bible, you're going to want one. If you don't have one, Bud is your new best friend. Turn two places. Turn Romans 8, turn Acts chapter 2. We're going to start Romans 8 because that's where we are. If you're joining with us, if you're visiting with us, several years ago we undertook a study through the life of Paul. That was after spending three years going chronologically through the Gospels, studying the life of Christ. We've made it to Romans, we've made it to Romans 8, and we're going slow. In fact, we're going slow enough that sometimes we bounce off and lateral into other places. Two weeks ago, before Christmas, we found ourselves lateraling to Acts chapter 2, and we left that Sunday with some unfinished business. This morning, we pick up where we left off. But that was two weeks ago, so I'm going to recap for the benefit of people who have had as many cookies over the last two weeks as I have. Romans 8, we started two weeks ago in verse 18. Paul talking about the fall and God's curse on the universe following the fall. Paul was talking about the effect that it had, not just on humanity, but on all of creation. All of creation was longing, groaning, Romans 8, 22, groaning for the return of Jesus. Because that means redemption of our bodies. It also means the beginning of redemption of the whole creation. But in talking about all of that and unpacking what Paul had to say about the fall and the effects of the fall, we noticed something interesting. Read with me, refresh your memory, beginning in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, verse 23, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. As Paul describes you and me living in this place, living between the already and the not yet, the already of being saved, the not yet of having our glorified bodies, as Paul describes us in this place, in this state, he describes us. Jumps off the page if you're looking for it. Ten times in four verses, Paul speaks in the plural pronoun. We, our, ourselves. We wait for the return of Christ. We wait together. We wait as community. We wait as an us. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Interestingly, it has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about. It's not, it has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about in that passage in Romans 8. He has a lot to say about it in other places, not there. Which is actually what I think makes the observation all that more profound, all that more dramatic, if you will. Because Paul's not preaching or teaching or talking about community here. He's assuming it. He's taking it as a given, of course, as we groan, as we wait, as we hope, as we persevere. Of course, as we look for the return of Christ, of course we're doing it together. And we agreed two weeks ago when we first embarked on this journey, we agreed that made sense. Jesus called us out of the world to be family together, to be part of one another. And we noted that there are some 100 verses where he, Jesus, and the apostles exhort us in this way. Love one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, encourage one another, be with one accord, one with another. And that's how we ended up in Acts chapter 2, watching the early church live out all of those one another's. 
we went to Acts chapter 2 to put legs to that teaching. Which is a good test for anything you encounter in the church. You encounter anything, any teaching, any anything, and you ask yourself, is this biblical or is this just weird? Three questions that will get you started. Did Jesus teach it? Did the apostles write about it? Did the early church live it? Do we see it in the book of Acts? If we're talking about church as community, church as family, the body of Christ also being the family of God, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. Yes, Jesus taught it. Yes, the apostles wrote about it. And yes, the church in the book of Acts very much lived it. Question, you can turn to Acts now. We're done with Romans for this morning, I think. But question as you're turning there, why don't we see it? If it is so very much the plain teaching of Scripture, why don't we see this one-anotherness characterize the church today? Why don't we see it characterize the church more? Because it's frequently absent from the modern church, especially from the 21st century American church. Why is that? At least two reasons. And again, this is review from a couple weeks ago, but some of you are visiting and some of you have slept since then. Why don't we see more one-anotherness in the 21st century American church? Reason one, we haven't needed it. We've been living in an unusual, borderline unique period of history in which the church, being part of the church, belonging to the church, has been politically correct. I get that that's changing, but for most of the last 200 years, church has been a very comfortable place to be. Culture and society have supported and affirmed and validated us as Christ's followers. So we haven't needed to depend on the church the way that most of the world through most of history has. We haven't needed the one anotherness. We've been able to get by just fine without it because we haven't been persecuted. Here's the second reason I don't think we see one anotherness in the church today the way that we see it in the book of Acts. We haven't wanted it. We haven't needed it, number one. We haven't wanted it, number two. Because our pride would always prefer to not need anyone or anything, right? Our pride would always rather be self-reliant, self-sufficient, and independent. But here's the thing, and I think you know this, we're not going to get away with that very much longer. It won't be long before we need community the way that Jesus intended us for us to live in community, the way the apostles taught us to live in community, the way the early church modeled. How do I know that's true? Why do I believe we're going to need the church? Three reasons, past, present, future. History says we're going to need each other because, again, this, this, this period of history where the church is not only accepted but affirmed is borderline unique. The norm of the church throughout history, the norm of the church in the world today, is persecution. Christians are the most persecuted people group on the planet, and that's becoming more true, not less true, with every passing year. It would be beyond arrogant to believe persecution won't come for us even on these shores. Headlines, let's talk about the present, headlines say it already is. The, you, you see it. You experience it. The growing legal discrimination against the church. Discrimination is, is the early precursor to persecution. And it's happening. Yes, the current Supreme Court is pushing back, and praise God for that. But at the same time, they have more to push back on, don't they? More lower court decisions, more state and federal legislation, more local regulation to push against. 
I was talking to someone after church last week. We were reflecting not on 2022, but on 2020, because that was a weird year. And we were talking about how eagerly, how many states pounced, seemingly, on the opportunity to shut churches down. Long after the science said it's not relevant anymore, even as they kept other institutions open, there were those who pounced on the opportunity to muzzle and throttle the church. Do I think that that was a plot? Do I think that was a conspiracy? I don't. You might. And if we disagree, let's still be friends. But here's what I do think. Whether it was a plot or not the first time, the last time, it will be the next time. Because anybody paying attention has learned lessons about how to shut down the church dramatically, swiftly, and effectively. It will happen again. History tells us persecution is coming. The headlines tell us persecution is happening. Prophecy says, yeah, and there's no question. There may be revival first, and we pray for that. There may be rapture first, and that would be okay too, wouldn't it? But persecution is coming for Christ's followers. It may not be a straight line. It is a solid line. There is no uncertainty about where our trajectory leads. The destination is clear. Christ's followers will be persecuted. The only thing that we're not sure about is the exact route we'll take to get there. But, but even if none of that were true, listen, even if we had no, let's be honest, self-serving motive for pursuing community, Clearly, I think we do, but even if we didn't, community, listen, community is still a commandment. A new commandment I give you, Jesus says in John 13, 31, in John 15, 12, in John 15, 17, repeating himself almost as if this is important. A new commandment I give you, love one another. Community is a commandment. And for bonus points, it's also the means by which we fulfill another commandment that Jesus laid on us, the commandment that he gave us to evacuate the planet. He said, I'm calling you to preach the gospel to every living creature. Make disciples in every nation. Be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outermost parts. How do we do that? Many ways, but the effective ones all center around church. The most effective evangelical tool in our tool belt is not a tract or a testimony or a tent revival or a good person test. Those things have their place. But the most important evangelical research, uh, sorry, resource we have is each other. The love we have for each other. The community we are together. The most important evangelical tool at our disposal is the church. Like I said, I'm going quickly summarizing what we developed more fully two weeks ago. If you want to circle back, if you missed that, you can go to our archives on the website. You can check on our podcast, which has a new landing place. Search for it under a new title. That's what it is now. Some of you, in that transition, we lost some things. And some of you have called out, hey, anything before like 2018 is inaccessible right now. We know. We're working on it. Thank you for your, your, your grace. <laughs> But this is where we left off. This is where we were two weeks ago. Jesus calling us to be the church, to live in community, to be part of one another as we win and build and send disciples for Christ. How do we do that? Full and complete answer would take months. It would take us to and then through all of those 100 one another statements. Statements of Jesus and Peter and Paul and 
Jude and John and, and, and James, sorting through what they said, what they mean, how do they apply? We don't have time for that. If you want to, we're not going to take time for that, I should say. If you want to do that, it's a great study, and I would encourage you. Check out Gene Getz's books. We went through one of them, and I can't remember whether it was men or women or in what context, but sometime in the last 10 years, we've gone through building up one another. He also wrote encouraging one another, serving one another, praying for one another, loving one another. And he explores these one another statements in a really straightforward style. This is not lofty academic prose. This is street-level theology. He's a guy like you and me talking to guys like you and me. It's written for the church. But this morning, I'm going to take a shortcut. Because I really do feel like God is calling us back to Romans 8 next week. So I want to take today, which New Year's Day as it happens, to consider some of the implications of this commandment, this teaching. Some of the implications for you and I at Calvary. Opportunities that we might have to learn and grow. Opportunities that we might have to hunker down and stay the course. Acts chapter 2. Jesus taught it. Community. Apostles wrote about it. How did the early church live it? And how, what, what do we learn from what they did? Verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and the breaking of bread and in prayers. They continued steadfastly. They made it their priority. Fear came upon every soul. The 12 apostles, the 150 Sorry, the 120 disciples, the 500 who saw Jesus resurrected, the 3,000 saved at Pentecost. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles, and all who believed were together. Not always physically, but not never, but even when they were separated physically together as community. They knew who they were. They knew they were called out and set aside for a purpose. They knew that they were, were knit together, bound together by something greater than any of their differences. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Which is not a commandment, and that's important because some people try to tell you that it is. But you can't find anywhere in Scripture that mandates that we do this. In fact, Acts chapter 5, Peter talking to Ananias, Ananias sold all that he had and said that he was going to give it to the church, but then he didn't. And Peter says, you didn't have to do any of that. You were under no obligation to do any of that. Your problem, Ananias, is that you lied about it. He could have kept the money, is the point. So so why did they do what they did? Apparently in that place and that time, the persecution of the early church, what it was to be church in that place and that time, made it a necessity. Jesus said, love one another. Love is a verb. Love meets needs, and love keeps on meeting needs until needs are met. And so apparently that place in that time, pooling their resources is what it took to meet the needs of the community. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, not allowing their differences to divide them in any way, and breaking bread from house to house, because there was no place other than the temple big enough to hold them, and no place other than homes safe enough for them to gather. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. The implication is they did so daily. They met more than once a week. They didn't divide their public lives and their private lives, their me time and their the time. Their entire lives belonged to Jesus. Their entire day, their entire week was Jesus' time. Whatever they were doing, it was worship. Their lives were built around genuine love for the Lord, sincere devotion to one another. And because that was true, as they were praising God with their lips and with their lives, as they were loving each other, they had favor with all the people. 
Okay, not literally all the people, because we know some of the people were persecuting them. Some of the people were throwing rocks at their heads. But all classes of people, all categories of people, all demographics, they appealed across the spectrum because people saw something different in them. They saw that their prayer wasn't just the rote recitation of words and verses. It was accompanied by joy. It was lived out in love, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So what does that look like for us? How do we take those concepts and apply them to our life, to our context? What can we do at Calvary to make that our testimony? I do not have all the answers. I have a few thoughts this morning to help guide us as we step into 2023 together, if you want to think about it that way. Things I'm thinking about, at least. Things I believe the Lord has shown me. Rewinding back to verse 44, I'm struck by the emphasis Luke places on the fact that the church gathered regularly. The church, this is going to blow your mind, came to church. The church came together. They came together, roll, roll back to verse 42, to study the word. They came together for fellowship. They came together for communion. They came together for prayer. And I'm really sure if the author of Hebrews had hit, written Hebrews at this point, they would have stared at Hebrews 10 verse 25 in disbelief. Not neglecting the assembly, as is the habit of some. What? That exhortation would not have been necessary for the Acts chapter 2 church because I don't think the thought would have possibly occurred to them that gathering as the body of Christ might be optional. And it should be just as strange to us. The early church knew what we know if we're honest with ourselves, if we pay attention, if we look around, especially when we're here, how vital it is to study the word together. So we can go away and follow up and ask each other, what did you hear and how did God speak to your heart and how are you going to apply it to your life? And what can I hold you accountable for? To worship together. Yes, we can worship alone, and we should, and that's good. But worshiping together, we're reminded that, that ours is not the only voice crying out of the wilderness to God the Father. We're surrounded by a chorus of voices here, which reminds us that we're accompanied by a heavenly chorus. We're part of something much, much, much greater than ourselves. We come together to exercise spiritual gifts because if we don't, we can't. Our gifts are not for ourselves. Our gifts are for others, alone by ourselves. They find no expression. We come together to pray. Can you pray alone in your prayer closet? Yes, and you should. But we come together, we can agree in prayer. There's power when two or three agree in prayer. We come together, we find out how to pray how can I pray for you? How can I intercede for you specifically? What happened? Tell me the rest of the story that, that happened after I prayed for you the last time. What did God do? What is God, how has God moved? What can we praise God for? And we can come together and we can see how to bear one another's burdens practically. Yet we can ask over text. We can ask over the phone. But I can't see someone's face over text I can't hear their tone over text. I can't read their body language even over the phone. I can't tell when no really means yes. I can't tell always when someone is heavy, burdened, needing help. It's a lot easier when I'm looking them face to face and I can say, no, really. No, seriously. Get real with me. See, it's, 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 it's so obvious when we're here and, and we lose it so quickly when we're away especially, especially if we think of the time here, if we think of what we're doing this morning as Bible study. 
Because that's part of it, it's not all of it. If we think of it as Bible study, though, we can pretty quickly convince ourselves we can do that at home and we can do it better. Because at home, you've got the greatest teachers of the 20th century available on your phone, and you don't have to listen to one Yahoo from Minnesota. And that's true. You can study the Bible at home. I hope that you are. But Sundays is not just Bible study. And, and, and we're guilty. We, 21st century American church, guilty. We, Calvary, we're guilty of perpetuating that, that, that illusion, that idea. We're, we're, we're guilty of promoting celebrity pastors, charismatic, passionate communicators of the word. And, and look, that's an important gifting and calling. I'm not saying that it isn't. It's, it's important to be able to teach the Bible with unction, with passion. Teaching of the Word is important. It's just not all that's important. And I, and I probably failed to emphasize this enough. Because I got on a COVID, and I'll, and I'll be honest, I got tunnel vision. We got to love people where they're at. And not everybody, it's not wise for everybody to gather together. Because it wasn't, and it still isn't. It, and, 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 and so I really felt burdened to encourage people, to make it okay for people to worship where they were at, at home, in the hospital, at a rehab. And those of you who are joining us at home, I'm not coming at you. I love you, and I'm so grateful for the technology that allows us to, to transcend the, the distance. I'll tell you, in many ways, our online congregation is, is some of the most faithful people in the church. But as much as we need to exhort those who need to be home to be at home, we need to exhort those who need to be here to be here, to do what you need to do to get here. Well, I don't always get anything out of it. And if that's the attitude, that's self-fulfilling prophecy. I promise you it is. I've, I've been there. I've proven. I've done that test. I've proven that. The problem is it misses the mark. It misses the point. Because the Christian life is supposed to be about... Thank you, Gail. Others. And when someone stays away, we lose. We miss out on their voice. We miss out on their prayer. We miss out on their gifting. We miss out on their example saying, yes, the gathering of the saints is important. We miss out on them saying to young people and people young in the faith, the body of Christ coming together is important. Several years ago, we had a family, we had a husband and wife who would drop off their kids at church and then go to breakfast. And after a while, we finally, finally caught them. They were good at making a quick getaway. But we finally, we, we laid in wait for them. We, we, and we said, hey, tell, tell, us, tell us what you're going for here. Tell us what, what your, 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 your thing is. We want our kids to be in church. It's important that kids grow up in church. Oh, what about you guys? Yeah, we want our kids to grow up in church. Talk, talk about a mixed message. Hey, kids, it's important to be in church, just not for us. If you're looking for a New Year's resolution, let's, 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 let's close this off and move on. You could do worse than committing to being here. Unless you're sick, unless you're out of town, unless there are genuinely ex, ex, you know, extenuating circumstances, because sometimes there are. Be here on Sundays. Can't be here on Sundays? Be here on Wednesdays. Can't be here on Wednesdays or Sundays? I'm going to say pray about another job. And I'm going to mean it. The more I'd like to say, more I probably will say, but let's keep going. Luke tells us the early church came together. 
Also says they had all things in common. They met one another's needs. The encouragement I take away from that for us, we got a huge and growing opportunity for family, not just to come to church, but to be the church, to love each other and to serve each other. And usually when I say something like that, I'm, I'm, I'm leading up to, so ushers, children's church, lawn, garden, snow. Thank you, by the way, for the folks who moved snow. A couple, when was it? That was just last week, wasn't it? Those are all opportunities. But another growing opportunity to be the church is serving the people of the church directly. Widows, orphans, seniors, people in hospice, people with newborns, people who are grieving. Many of whom, because we're good Kansans, are reluctant to ask for help. Why? Everybody say it together. We don't want to be a burden. What if we could convince each other that we wouldn't be? What if we could convince each other that it was okay to ask? Because what does Scripture tell us? Bear one another's burdens. It's a blessing to help. It's a blessing to serve. And in an ideal world, that would happen organically. In an ideal world, you know, see something, say something, it would be see something, do something. See a need, meet a need. But that only works if we're together enough and transparent enough, open and humble enough to know and respond to each other's needs. And sometimes that happens. I'm not saying that it doesn't, and praise God when it does. It could happen a lot more. And because we're not particularly used to it, I think we might need to catalyze things a little bit. Because I think the need is going to get greater, not, not lesser. We're getting older, many of us. I don't think we've seen the last new crippling virus. We've got a lot of babies being born, praise God. There's more of us in the church than there were five years ago, praise God. So I think there's an opportunity to, to organize and facilitate people loving people, the body being the body. Rob is going to have cards and pens outside of the service with, with a list of some of the typical opportunities that right now a handful of faithful servants are working really hard to meet. Errands, appointments, cooking, meals, housework, yard work, auto repair, small engine repair, home repair, budget help, help with paperwork, help with taxes, babysitting, phone calls, visits, prayer. Not a complete list. It's just, we, we sat down and we said, okay, what's the stuff that, that we've done over the last month? And what's the stuff that we would do more of if more people were available? I think that if we said, hey, there's a cadre of people that are looking for ways to love you, I think we would see more response. Patrick, it seems like you're trying to organize the Holy Spirit onto the church. I'm not. I'm trying to organize the Holy Spirit into the church because God's a God of order. He's got a plan. He's got a structure. The Holy Spirit is who organizes. The Holy Spirit is who plans. We see that all through Scripture. So, so me talking about this, Robin Dakota organizing it, that's obedience to the Holy Spirit. That's not bypassing the Holy Spirit. That's saying, hey, we've got an opportunity to help and love and serve the body of Christ by organizing, and that's what the Holy Spirit calls us to do. What's he calling you to do? That's not guilt, that's not obligation, that's not pressure or expectation, that's an honest question. Some of you are pushing back. Not with your mouth, because you're too polite, but I can see it with the body language. I can see some of you are saying, I'm not ready for this kind of commitment. I mean, we just went right into the deep end of the pool there, Patrick. Come on. I get that. And I especially get that if you've been hurt in church before. 
if you've had these kinds of relationships that we see in Acts chapter 2, this kind of involvement, this, this intimacy in the body, if people that you trusted took advantage of that trust, took advantage of you, maybe you're still tender. Maybe you're more than tender. Maybe you're raw. Maybe you're aching. I get that. I've been there. But because I've been there, I can tell you, there comes a time for all of us, for any of us who have been hurt in church, listen, there comes a time that we need to stop letting that hurt define us. An analogy that might seem strange, but really isn't. I counsel on a too regular basis couples dealing with infidelity or other hurtful sin. Relationships where trust has been broken. And the hurt runs deep. When I minister to couples dealing with that kind of pain, I encourage them, do not hide it. Do not stuff it. Do not minimize it. Express it. Be honest about it. When trust is broken, pain is inevitable. And, 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 and talking about it is only reasonable. Pretending that hurt doesn't hurt just prolongs the time of hurt. But after a time, after a time of letting it be real, after a time of processing, I will also encourage those same people to know and to believe they don't have to sit in pain forever. The enemy wants us to believe that. The enemy wants us to believe that which is broken will be forever broken. We will be forever broken. That overlooks one important thing. Jesus heals. You need to not stay stuck in the pain if the marriage is going to heal. You need to not stay stuck in the pain if you're ever going to be part of the body of Christ in a real vital way again. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying get over it. I'm not saying move on. I'm not saying suck it up. I'm saying don't stay stuck. Don't let it define you. It happened to you. And it hurt a lot. But it's not who you are. Jesus is who we are. Pain doesn't define us. Jesus defines us. Same thing that's true in marriages. Same thing that's true in other relationships. It's true in the church. Sometimes that unfaithfulness runs deep enough that the way to healing is through leaving. Things go on long enough, cuts deep enough. Jesus said, yeah, there is a point where all the king's horses and all the king's men are not going to put this marriage back together. The same is true for church hurt. And in cases like that, yeah, the experience is going to make us slow to trust a whole new group of people in a whole new place. But there also comes a point where we have to decide we're willing to. Willing to be open, willing to be vulnerable, maybe willing to be disappointed or even hurt. Because the alternative, the alternative is worse. The alternative is shutting ourselves off from the love and the support and the ministry of community. Acts 2.46. Acts 2.46. Luke talks about the church being in one accord. The idea there is shoulder to shoulder. No daylight between them. Committed to one another. You ask people who have served in the military, what was your motivation in combat? Inevitably the answer will be the guy to my right, the guy to my left. Serving in one accord. That's the idea that Luke is, is referencing. Commit to a fellowship. Care about the guy to your left and the guy to your right. If you're not ready, if you're still processing, if things are too fresh and too raw, that's cool. 
I am not pushing. But if you're just stuck, and you know that all your yard is stuck, are you willing to have a conversation with God about that? Are you willing to talk to a pastor or a pastor's wife about that? What's getting in the way? Are you willing to ask the question? If it's not the pain, if you've processed through that, how come you're still stuck? Is it just inertia? Is it more? Maybe it's us. I'm not being flipped. That's a, that's a perfectly viable answer. Maybe you're not able to fully commit to this church because you're not really called to this church. Not everyone is. There are 500 churches in this city. Some people have got to go to other ones. <laughs> is that you? Are you willing to step out in faith and follow the Lord and find that place you can commit? I'm not, I'm not trying to push anybody out the door. Patty, you've got to come back. <laughs> <laughs> oh man look out for the irish ones i'm telling you i'm not trying to push anyone out the door but god wants you to be part of a local fellowship where you can serve and be served if you can't bring yourself to commit here for whatever reason You've, you've tried, you've waited, you've prayed, you've talked, it's just not right. If it's not right, it's wrong. And the wrong, and two wrongs don't make a right. The wrong response to a wrong answer is another wrong answer. Don't stay and be uncommitted. God hates lukewarm. The right answer is find the place where you can be on fire. God wants that for you. Come to church, be the church. i got to pick up the pace. Commit to church, shrink the church. That's weird. Where'd you get that, Patrick? <laughs> Verse 46. Because they not only gathered in a large group at the temple, which, by the way, can you imagine being at the temple, watching them sacrifice animals for sin, knowing that Jesus, the sacrifice, the lamb, without spot or blemish, was already slain? That had to be a trip. But they not only gathered in that large group at the temple, they gathered in small groups, breaking bread from house to house. And that can seem weird to us because we come from a tribe of megachurches. At one point, three or four out of the ten biggest churches in the country were Calvary chapels. Some of that's just an accident of history. When revival happened in the late 60s, Calvary was ground zero. Some of it is also a byproduct of this age of celebrity pastors. Oh, Chuck and Bob and Greg, great men of God. But the first to say, no, worship God, don't worship me. And on the one hand, not many mega Calvaries in the middle of the country. I think the closest one is in Denver. But even living in Wichita, there's non-Calvaries that are whopping big. More mega churches in Wichita than the whole state of New Jersey. More, more mega churches in Wichita than the whole state of Can uh, 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 Minnesota. Those are the other two states I know best. So it's, it's easy to get a complex. It's easy to look around at the, the 200 or so people that call Calvary home and say, oh, we're doing something wrong. We're failing. That's not necessarily true. A, average-sized church in the United States before COVID was 71 souls. So in, in that respect, we're very, very normal. Second, as a friend of mine says, God must love small churches. He sure made a lot of them. But here's the third point, and it's the most important one. 200 isn't too small. 200 is too big. It's hard to know 200 names, let alone 200 lives. 
You can't keep track of what's going on in 200 families, not in any detail, not with any specificity. 200 people, you can't reliably keep track of who's here and who's missing, who's hurting. You can't be confident that you know how to be praying. So what's the answer? Shrink the church. Find ways to make big church small, home groups, breaking bread from house to house, men's groups, women's groups, ministries that meet regularly, someplace where you can know people and be known by people. Men's and women's groups starting back up soon. Two existing home groups coming back online this week. Two more we're getting ready to bring online. I've been saying that for a while. It's, it's, it's still true. We just, I don't want to do it until we can do it well, but we're close. Wednesdays. Wednesdays in Isaiah can be that small group if you want to make it that. How you get plugged in is not nearly as important as getting plugged in. Committing to a small community that's going to notice and care if you're not around. That's going to notice and care if you're not all right. Somewhere where the people have visibility, still verse 46, of our gladness and simplicity of heart. Visibility of it so they can be encouraged when they see it. Visibility so that they can ask when they don't. What's wrong? What's happening? What changed? What needs to change? Change might be very personal. It might be individual. It might be our relationship with the Lord. My devotional life is stale. My private worship is non-existent. There's sin I'm not confessing. There's disappointment I'm not handing over to the Lord. Okay, can I pray for you? Can I check in with you? Can I ask you next week how that's going? Change might also involve our involvement with others. Gladness and simplicity of heart is just the outward manifestation of what God is doing inwardly. The genuine devotion we have for God, the sincere love we have for other people. Listen, if I'm deeply frustrated with people, that's going to quench that simplicity and gladness of heart. If I'm not forgiving people, if I'm bitter towards people, that's going to get in the way. In fact, if you ask me, the, the, the quickest way to quash an Acts chapter 2 church like we're reading about is, is, is just that. It's bitterness. Because bitterness, bitterness, think about it, bitterness is the opposite of forgiveness. Bitterness is a settled, studied state of unforgiveness. The decision to stay hurt because you think it's justified to stay angry because you've got a right to be. But what ends up happening, everything we have, the fruit of the Spirit that's ours, that's our birthright because we're forgiven, goes away. Because bitterness is the opposite of forgiveness. The peace and joy that you have because you're forgiven, bitterness snuffs it out. Robs us of peace and joy. And robs the church, listen, robs the body of Christ of our worship, of our prayer, of our gifting, of our ministry. Because one of two things happens. Either in our bitterness we stop showing up until someone pays for what they did, until someone apologizes, a real apology for me, until a leader says to me, yeah, we were wrong, until that thing that happened that nobody cared about, until somebody cares. We either stop showing up until that situation is remedied to our satisfaction. Or, this might be worse, we still show up in our bitterness because we're on a schedule. So I'm going to show up at the right place on the right time because that's what men do. But I'm going to show up without the right spirit. Because bitterness is quenching the spirit. So I'll worship, I'll pray, I'll read, I'll serve. It'll be weak and hollow and empty and vain. There will be no joy. It will seem pointless because it is pointless because it's my flesh. Answer? Forgive the church. Have grace 
for the church. Talked about this briefly in Christmas. One purpose of church is this is where we come to learn grace. It's inevitable if we hang in, if we commit to church like we commit to a marriage, if we don't go away in a huff just because somebody said something cross to us, we will learn grace, just like we do in marriage. Because as we serve and we are served, we're going to offend and be offended. We're going to disappoint and be disappointed. Because we're human. What do we do when that happens? We forgive and ask forgiveness. We extend grace and we accept grace. Which means we have to talk to each other about the stuff that happens. Not about each other, to each other. And Jesus gives us a roadmap to follow. It's in Matthew 18. You're familiar with the verses. Have the conversation. If it doesn't go well, have it again with one or two witnesses. If it doesn't go well, have it again with church leadership at your side. Is that uncomfortable? You bet. But growth always is. We, think about it. We, we, you don't, we don't grow where we're comfortable. That's it, it, contradiction in terms. It's true as an athlete in training. You try to grow in strength or in speed, you got to get uncomfortable. As a Christian in training, growing in grace, you're going to be uncomfortable. Got to recognize the need for it, the opportunity to bless other people with it, because that has everything to do with being a Christ follower. Being a Christ follower has everything to do with grace. Comfortable? No. Good? Yeah, because it's sanctification, and sanctification is good. The alternative is gossip and division, if, if you express the bitterness. If you express it to someone who doesn't need to be the recipient of it, then the fruit is gossip and division. Or if you stuff it, well, then the fruit is disunity and isolation. One is bad, the other is worse. Which is why Jesus doesn't give us a choice. He doesn't say, hey, forgive if the person is really sorry. He says, no, forgive. He doesn't say, go to the person if you think it'll make a difference. No, he says, go. Forgive because I've forgiven you. Go because I came to you. And yeah, if someone rejects you, that happens to me. And if it happens, move on. But if there's any opportunity for grace, take it, Jesus says. Because he took that opportunity with us. Running out of daylight here, I'm going to double down on the last two. I was going for eight because eight's the number of new beginnings, but seven's a good number too. <laughs> Verse 47, as Luke wraps up the section, talks about the early church praising God and having favor with all of the people. What I take away from that the early church stayed on mission. They stayed the church. What does that mean? If I ask you what the mission of the church is, you're going to say glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You're going to say love God, love people, love people to God. You're going to say win, build, and send disciples for Jesus. You're going to say be witnesses of God. Those are all good answers. To the extent that we remember the answers. <laughs> to the extent that we remember the answers, root and ground ourselves in any one of them, pick one and run with it, will be like the early church. We'll bear much fruit. Maybe the same kind of fruit, maybe a different kind of fruit, but we'll bear the fruit that God intends for us if we stay on mission. What will get in the way of fruit is if our fellowship finds itself centered on anything other than God. If we decide our mission is something other than praising God and our focus is something other than Christ and Him crucified. My home church used to do an outreach every year. Believers from the New York Jets, the New York Giants football teams um, would, would come and share their testimony. And um, we, had a, we had a relationship with a chaplain from the Giants who helped us set it up. And the Jets and the Giants, 
though their name says New York, both play in New Jersey. So a lot of people attending our church, we were in central Jersey, cheered for the Jets or the Giants. So it was a great, fruitful outreach. Thing is, south of central Jersey is South Jersey. And in South Jersey, they cheer for the Eagles. <laughs> Jesus died for that sin too, but... But, you, but, but, but I, shouldn't, I shouldn't joke, because, because here's where this is going. During this outreach one year, someone shows up in an Eagles jersey. And the usher says, Psh, what are you doing with that? Get out of here with that. What are you thinking? And he got out of there. He got left. Got in his car, drove away. What, what, what did God want to do with that guy that night? Was he coming to hear the gospel and get saved? Was he coming to hear a testimony about how someone walked away from the Lord, but the Lord walked, welcomed him back and when he was going to rededicate? Was he going to get plugged into ministry? Was he going to decide, hey, here's a church family? A lot of things could have happened. Only, thing one, only one thing did happen. He left. He left because the first thing he encountered wasn't Jesus. The first thing he encountered was a test. Are you wearing the right shirt? Do you cheer for the right team? Are we doing that? Got to ask, are we turning people away? Maybe not turning them away at the door, but not letting them all the way in. Not letting them feel welcome. Not letting them become real family because they're not wearing the right hat. Toting the right pistol. Voting for the right candidate. Believing the right theory about what's really going on behind the scenes. Those things are not, cannot be the basis of our fellowship. The basis of our fellowship must be Christ and Him crucified. That's who we are. That's why we're here. That's the only thing of value we have to offer this world. The early church found favor, Luke says, with all of the people, young and old, male, female, slave and free, Greek and, 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 and Jew, liberal and conservative, pro-Rome, anti-Rome, all welcome because the gospel was greater than any of their differences. The early statement of faith of Calvary Chapel said something very similar. The basis of our fellowship is God's agape love, which transcends any differences that exist between us and without which we have no right to call ourselves Christians. Now, we said earlier, not literally all the people were in favor of the church. Some opposed the early church, persecuted the early church. Why? Because they opposed the gospel. That should be our story. That should be our testimony. If someone has a problem with Calvary, let it be because they have a problem with Jesus. Not because they think we have a problem with them. If someone feels unwelcome, let it be because they're against the gospel, not because they have a Black Lives Matter t-shirt on, or they're in favor of gun control, or they voted for Biden, or they've been vaccinated and boosted twice. And I'm not laughing because I know that there are people who have left our church for each of those four reasons. Some for a season, and, 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 and I know that's why they left, because they told me when they came back. Some who left that probably aren't coming back. Because they showed up wearing the wrong jersey. And we said, go away. You're, you're not on this team. And that, that, that misses it so horribly. The early church had favor among who? Among all people. Because they believed Jesus when he said, go and preach the gospel to all people. 
And they approached people on the basis of the gospel. They met them where they were at, like Jesus met us. Loved them where they were. The reality is if we're checking jerseys at the door, if we're requiring the right politics, the right allegiance, we're, we're not preaching the gospel. And there won't be any fruit. Because the gospel says we're saved by grace. If we say it's grace and the right ideology, grace and the right philosophy, grace plus, grace plus anything is nothing. And God won't add to the church daily those who are being saved. He'll direct them somewhere else. Is it, is, is, is it wrong to have convictions? No, I do. I hope you do. But I hope even more the person with whom you disagree, the person who holds different convictions, can still be your brother, can still be your sister. Because it's Jesus who makes us brothers and sisters and nothing else and no one else. Philippians chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. This is where we're going to wrap up. Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and mercy, if you have experienced the love of Jesus in any way, shape, or form, any comfort, any support, any friendship, do this, Paul says. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded with Christ and with each other. By having the same love as Jesus and the church. Being of one accord with Jesus and the followers of Jesus. Of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem himself better than, uh, others better than himself. If God loves you and you know God loves you, Paul says, love others in his name. Starting with the person to your left and to your right. Starting with the church. Because that's what church is. That's what it's supposed to be. That's who we're supposed to be. People saved by Jesus, filled with the Spirit of Jesus, loving like Jesus. Starting with the family of Jesus, and then as the family of Jesus, reaching out to people who still need Jesus. Grayson, come on back up. If you know you've been loved by Jesus, Paul says, love like Jesus. If you've been loved by Jesus, love like Jesus. Come together as the church because Jesus came. Be the church. Serve one another because Jesus served. Choose a church and commit to it. Let God lead you to one because Jesus committed to us. He chose us before the foundations of the earth. Shrink the church until, until it's, a, it's a group of people that you know and that know you. Because Jesus knows every one of us, calls us by name. Forgive the church. Because Jesus forgives us. Stay the church. Jesus didn't turn away. Not in the wilderness with Satan, not in the garden. Not sweating blood, he didn't turn away. For the joy set before him. He stayed the course. We're going to celebrate communion, but, but that was a lot. <laughs> Even for me, that was a lot. Let's, let's pause for just a moment. Let's, let's say la and let what God has been speaking soak in. Meditate on, on those seven points. Probably some were, 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 were tailor-made for you. Others, eh. I hope it hit whoever it was aimed at. I don't know.
Most of them hit me. Jesus, speak to our hearts as, as we pause now.